The Water Values Podcast, Session 108. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resource, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGinnis. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, I'm Dave McGinsey and thanks so much for joining me. I've uh, got a great program for you today uh, in an area that you may not have heard of called paleohydrology. We have one of the legends in the water business, Ken Wright, uh, who's coming on to talk about paleohydrology, uh, his studies into paleohydrology and what uh, the lessons he's learned from paleo, paleo hydrology and what they can teach us. So uh, stay tuned for just I, I what I find is an incredibly interesting um, uh, study of paleo hydrology and really how that relates to history and anthropology and a lot of different things about you know how how we came to be who we are. So I really think this is uh, a, a top notch interview, and I I, I think Ken. Uh, is just uh, fantastic. Again, he is a legend in the water business, so uh, I really appreciate him coming on. But in any event, uh, before we get going, we have some typical housekeeping. I wanted to uh, thank uh, you for your generous donations. Also, thank you uh, to those of you who've uh, rated and reviewed the podcast. There's two new ratings and reviews uh, on iTunes uh, for this uh, episode, uh, Tuatama one says, a uh, great resource for current water issues in America. She, uh, Tuatama One says, uh, I've been listening since the first podcast, and it's gotten a lot better. Whether you're doing a research project on water or are in the industry, the Water Values Podcast is a great place to start or stay. I just recommended portions of the Pat Mulroy episode to an old intern researching low-income water rates. Dave offers an unbiased view into different topics like the public versus private sector and so forth. So, Thank you very much for the five-star rating and great review to Atama One. Uh, also, Andy R. Shaw uh, says, great perspective and excellent interview style, giving his five-star rating. And he says, Dave, I commend you on an excellent podcast. Your style of questioning really draws out the best from those you're interviewing in a way that's probing, but always gracious as you seek to find out what the interview really thinks. Great job. Well, thank you so much to Atama One and Andy R. Shaw. Really appreciate you taking the time to uh, uh, provide your feedback on iTunes, given a, a great rating and a great review, so much appreciated. Uh, for those of you who haven't reviewed the podcast yet or rated the podcast yet, uh, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go on to uh, iTunes and give us a rating and review. would really appreciate it. It's a great way to uh, help others find out about the podcast. Um, now we're going to get on to Ken Wright. Ken, he, again, as I indicated earlier, a fantastic guy, uh, and he has so much knowledge and wisdom. There's no way we could pack it all uh, into just one podcast episode, but we're going to try. So uh, with that said, fasten your seatbelts, open the valves, and here we go. Well, Ken, thank you so much for taking your time and uh, spending, spending it with us here on the Water Values Podcast. I'm really excited about uh, having you on. So, uh, so Ken... Uh, to start, could you please tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Well, David, uh, my background is that I'm a native of Wisconsin, and I went to the University of Wisconsin, uh, graduated in civil engineering, and uh, from the U, uh, from Wisconsin, I have a Bachelor of Science degree in civil engineering and a bachelor's degree in business administration. 
Later on, I have a, I got a Master of Science degree in hydrology. And then back in 2011, I received a honorary Doctor of Science from the University of Wisconsin. So I'm kind of a Wisconsin guy. <laughs> After graduation with my bachelor's degrees, I went to Saudi Arabia, worked for the Arabian American Oil Company for five years. And I would say that it was then that I developed an interest in water because I saw the impact of inadequate water throughout Saudi Arabia and, of course, in the Middle East. Got it. Now, how did that, how did that shape what you've done for the last 50 or so years? Well, I'm glad you mentioned the 50 or so years because <laughs> I've had uh, a company called Wright Water Engineers since 1961, and we're just celebrating our... Uh, we're into our 57th year now since I formed Wright Water Engineers. Having a degree in civil engineering and then a master's degree in hydrology, I gravitated towards water engineering after spending uh, two years with the uh, U.S. Bureau of Reclamation. After I got my master's degree, I came out to Madison, uh, out to Denver and worked for the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation. That was a wonderful experience. And I learned a lot about Western water there. Terrific, terrific. Now, uh, one of the, one of the things that uh, uh, makes your work in hydrology and in the water industry, I think, uh, stand out a, a, apart from just being uh, a, a terrific water engineer, is that you've kind of taken uh, an interest in paleohydrology. And uh, could you tell us a little about what exactly paleohydrology is? ancient people. Very simple. But it takes us back a long, long time in uh, various civilizations, and that is, to me, that turned out to be a very interesting field to supplement my engineering practice here in Denver. Yeah, and, and can you tell us a little about what, you know, what if, I, I guess I should start off by asking you, what geographic areas did you study uh, for purposes of, of learning about paleohydrology? the Inca, and I started out at Machu Picchu, and my interest there actually got kicked off in 1974 when my wife came back from Peru and told me about the Inca and about the, um, about the marvel of Machu Picchu. It took me 20 years to get a uh, permit from the Peruvian government to study Machu Picchu, and that uh, came in 19... 94, when I did my first trip to Machu Picchu. So that was uh, a very interesting uh, turn of events for me to get down to South America. It was my first trip to South America, in fact. But the areas that we studied, paleohydrology, include uh, uh, obviously Peru, and we have, we've had on our fourth project in Peru with the Inca. But I've also studied the Anasazi people in uh, southwest United States, and that could be exemplified perhaps by thinking of, uh, of uh, Mesa Verde National Park. It's kind of a focal point for the Anasazi. But 
from there, we got hooked up with an organization in New York called the World Monument Fund, and that took us into Cambodia, Thailand, Burma, and separate apart from that, we also took on uh, an interest in ancient water power, water wheels in effect, and that took us to southern France to a Roman mill site where they ground uh, grain, and that's called Barbagall, and it's not far from Nice along the Rhone River. Um, then in addition to that, we have been much interested in the Middle East, a spin-off from my work in Saudi Arabia where I was a construction engineer. In the Middle East, we focused on a site in Jordan called Petra. We have another project which we haven't gotten to yet because of the unrest in Libya, but there's a site in along the Mediterranean Sea, eastern Libya, not far from the uh, Egyptian border called uh, Cyrene. And we haven't been there yet, but we're looking forward to the time when things settle down and we can get to Cyrene, which is a wonderful Greek-Roman uh, ruin. Well, that's, I mean, it's, it's fascinating that you've gone all over the globe, really, looking at these uh, ancient sites and how they used water. And, and, and I know, Ken, we had breakfast a few years ago, and I, I talked about you coming onto the podcast, and, and um, we decided it probably wasn't the right time for various reasons. But in any event, one of the things that I was doing recently, I read the book 1491, um, which is a lot about uh, – Central, South, and North American native peoples and how probably in actuality it was different than what we all learned growing up through grade school. Uh, and I think Charles C. Mann, who wrote the book, um, makes a compelling case that it's possible that these ancient peoples at the time Columbus came over to the, to the New World, they may have outnumbered the the people living in Europe and the water systems to support that kind of population that it just, it struck me that uh, I needed to circle back with you. And so I'm really glad you came on, but, but I, I guess like that's, that's some background in, in why I think paleo, paleo hydrology is so important because we, I think today we can learn so much from what was, what happened years ago. And so, you know, how what, can you can you talk a little about your findings and let's start with Machu Picchu, kind of where it all started for you. Uh, what kind of water systems were those peoples using, uh, and how did how did they you know those water systems support the population? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because uh, in studying Machu Picchu, starting back in 1994, I was amazed at the ingenuity of these ancient people dating to uh, well before uh, Columbus sailed for America. But what I found was that uh, these systems were sustainable. They were uh, uh, based on gravity flow, simple design, but using the same principles as we have in modern hydraulic engineering in terms of uh, the size of the canals, and the slope of the canal being consistent with the amount of water they needed to carry. Um, so the water systems, 
generally speaking, we could say we're well built, and the evidence of these water systems still exists so that it's an opportunity for modern engineers to study just what these people were doing. Um, these, the canals and water system were built out of stone, and so in uh, Machu Picchu and then in other sites like Capone and uh, Morai and Ointaytambo, when we study the water systems of these ancient Inca sites, we find the, uh, the fact that the Inca knew uh, hydraulics, and they knew it quite well in terms of being able to balance supplies with the uh, use of the water, the final use of the water. This was an amazing thing that we found at Ointaytambo, how the the, the system, the water system was well balanced from beginning to end. I would say that uh, we found that the engineers, or the, the, the Inca, were good engineers, and they uh, had a high standard of care. Uh, they didn't rush things. They built with simplicity and use of gravity flow. <coughs> they uh, were cognizant of uh, the hydraulic jump in uh, fast-flowing water, they, 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 uh, they were able to account for that. Um, so what I found was that these ancient people generally were um, conscientious, organized, and built good water systems that endured. And I think that we can learn a lot from these water systems in terms of simplicity, simple design, and sustainability and uh, adequacy. One of the things we found out about uh, Machu Picchu early on was that the myths were that uh, Machu Picchu was abandoned, likely abandoned because of shortage of water, and we found out that that was not the case, and that if it, the abandonment came uh, after the uh, invasion by the uh, Spanish and the conquistadors destroyed the empire. What happened was that Machu Picchu was finally abandoned because uh, uh, the collapse of the empire meant that there was no one, uh, in effect, to pay the workers. They, after a while, they uh, we, we estimate that in 1540 that the workers finally left Machu Picchu and went home, picked up their tools and went home. Hmm. Uh, so w when when you talk about how well designed and and simp simply designed with you know simple concepts, how uh, what what kind of evidence did you did you find to support those conclusions? Well, let me tell you about the, the last project we had worked on. It was at a place called um, Ointaytambo, and at Ointaytambo there is a, a water temple. And it's in good condition about for about the first uh, uh, four or five feet, because that what happened is that in 1579 there was a giant flood on the river that passes by Ointetambo, and it deposited about one to two meters of sediment, which meant that the water temple, the lower part of the water temple, was preserved. And, not, and the temple was not used as a stone quarry by the Spanish for building churches and buildings, other buildings. 
what happened is that I joined with the uh, Professor Mix at, at the University of Virginia and his, some of his students. And so joining with those people from Virginia and our people here from Denver, and then the people we hired out of uh, Peru, the local people, what we were able to do was to uh, <clears throat> uh, measure and study the fountains to determine what would be the optimum water supply for those fountains. When we added up all of the uh, 17 or so fountains at, at this water temple, of Ankamasana, uh, we then went worked backwards, then reverse engineering, to determine the capacity of the canals sup uh, supplying the temple. And we found out that uh, the size of the canals and the capacity of the canals were uh, compatible with the water requirement of these fountains flowing in an optimum, with an optimum flow. And then we continued on backwards up into the mountain side to the various water sources. And what we found remarkably was that the system was balanced from the very beginning where they diverted the water all the way down to use of the water in the canals and then the wastewater uh, from the canals back to the uh, stream. So we realized that they knew what they were doing and we were able to measure the uh, capacity of the canals quite well, even though some of the uh, water was carried underground via conduit. What we did was use fluorescein dye to track the water flow, which helped us determine which, uh, uh, which uh, canals and which underground conduits supplied which fountains. And we were able to determine the velocity and the capacity of the canals. And Remarkably, it all fit together. The same thing we found in uh, Machu Picchu in our earlier studies, where the uh, water supply for the for the canal, uh, water supply for the fountains, was just matched to the size of the canal, and uh, we were able to measure the the uh, estimate the roughness of the hydraulic roughness of the canal. We measured, surveyed the canal for slope and we were able to determine the capacity of the canal, which was just right for the demands of the 16 fountains at Machu Picchu that provided the domestic water supply. One of the other things we found out that there was no irrigation at Machu Picchu like had been thought, uh, because they didn't need irrigation. There was nearly 80 inches of rainfall a year at Machu Picchu, and uh, it would have been a waste of time to worry about uh, irrigating those crops because there was adequate rainfall. Were, have you been able to uh, make any deductions about population served in in when you're looking at these engineering uh, specifications? Yes. yes, absolutely. For instance, at um, at Machu Picchu, and consulting with the uh, professors, Professor John Rowe at the University of California, Berkeley, early on, we found out that his estimates of population at Machu Picchu was a maximum of 1,000 people when the emperor was in residence, because it was a, Machu Picchu was a uh, royal residence, royal estate. And then when the emperor wasn't there, there was a sustaining population of about 300. 
And so what we did was to do frequent measurements of the natural spring on the side, a mountain side of Mount Machu Picchu, and uh, and then compare that with the size of the canal and uh, the flow of the uh, fountain, and we found out that there was adequate water even during dry times for a po for the population uh, using they used uh, jugs, what we call uh, arribolos, to carry water to their houses, so there'd be enough water. So we concluded early on that Machu Picchu was not abandoned because of shortage of water, because even if our estimates were wrong, uh, uh, that we overestimated the basic supply, it was only a matter of going down to the do river down below the Urubamba River with uh, with these water jugs and carrying water up. So there's no way that Machu Picchu was abandoned because of the lack of water supply. As far as the population is concerned, we've concluded that with reasonable use of water, <coughs> we, made, we made estimates of how much domestic water these people would, be, would have required during ancient times. We found out that there was uh, enough water to take care of the uh, 300 people, and then the uh, during off off times when the Inca emperor was not there, and then the thousand people later on. Great. And how about uh, some of the other some of the other sites uh, that you know within the Incan Empire? Any ideas about population served from the the, the water tower example you gave earlier? Well, yes. Um, we also study the uh, site of Tepom, which is walled enclave uh, started well before the Inca by earlier people, but it was uh, and then turned into a royal estate uh, by the Inca. But uh, Tepon is a, uh, it, it's a lush, uh, heavily uh, uh, developed agricultural site within the uh, six miles of protective walls. In fact, the, uh, the walls are some 15 to 20 feet high surrounding the entire site where the people live and where they practice their agriculture. And so we figure there that the um, number of people, uh, a total living uh, both as workers and as visiting nobility, there was adequate water and uh, we were able to uh, judge the adequacy of the water supply by the by measuring the supplies, like the, the, the Tepon Spring, and then the size of the canal. So one thing about Tepon is that with 30 inches of rainfall a year, uh, they did practice irrigation, but they also were able to have uh, dry, uh, dry, dry land farming growing potatoes. So it was quite an agricultural site, and the, it's only been recent recently that the government forced the local Quechua Indians off the site because they were to protect the, the archaeological uh, aspect of the site. And so it's been uh, uh, farmed, this ancient site's been farmed by the local people until quite recently. In fact, when Hiram Bingham first visited Tepon in 19, uh, about 1912, 1911-1912, 
um, and took photographs, he found that, and his photographs prove it, uh, he found that the local people were farming Capone much as they had in ancient times. Another site we visited or studied in some detail is called Morai, M-O-R-A-Y. And at Morai, we uh, concluded after studying the site for five years that it was a uh, ceremonial religious site. And Morai is particularly interesting because it was discovered for the Western, uh, for the rest of the world in 1931 by a U.S. Navy pilot taking photographs. We were able to obtain those photographs from the uh, museum, the American Museum of Natural History in New York. And we were able to uh, determine that the long-held idea that it was an agricultural research station, the Inca, that that was a myth, that it really was a religious or ceremonial site. And Moriah is particularly interesting because it, uh, the Inca took natural sinkholes and embellished them with uh, perfectly round terraces and creating a, a marvelous site, uh, especially interesting site of massive earth moving and construction that has endured to this day. Hmm. So let's go back to, uh, I, I want to touch base about southern um, France, because there the site Barbagal, this ancient uh, Roman mill site, had 16 water wheels. Now the question is, where would they get enough water to turn uh, water wheels? Because each water wheel uh, was connected to a millstone, and we figured that they were able to uh, grind corn, uh, or uh, not corn, but uh, wheat, uh, to supply the uh, Roman enclave of uh, that we now know as uh, uh, Nice, on the, uh, along the near the Riviera, and that too is an old Roman site, uh, city with all the old ruins. But here they were able to get the supply by building aqueducts, and the Romans were great aqueduct builders, but they would stretch out mile after mile after mile through springs in the mountain area and carry the water with a very flat grade, but adequate, to deliver water to the mill for turning the water wheels. And the, the water beyond, besides beside turning the water wheels, they had enough water to carry a branch of the canal off to uh, Nice and um, supply the water, uh, provide the water supply for the uh, city there. And the capacity of these aqueducts is enormous. We found out that uh, they also built aqueducts to supply another site that we have studied in some detail, Pompeii. And uh, here... Pompeii was originally supplied by wells, groundwater, but then uh, later they uh, began building aqueducts, and the fi finally uh, they built the aqueduct about the uh, about 30, starting in about 33 BC, uh, a 90 a 90 kilometer long aqueduct that uh, started uh, south southeast of Pompeii and 
proceeded all the way to uh, the uh, Roman naval base um, uh, far to the north, where they had a, a wonderful water supply, complete with uh, cisterns that provide, made sure that there was a constant and reliable water supply for the Roman Navy. Yeah, I mean, this is fascinating. How did how do you? Uh... Do you have any thoughts about how these ancient peoples may have engineered uh, these, you know, these these infrastructure projects uh, without the benefit of kind of the modern tools uh, our generation uh, and our, you know, modern America has enjoyed? Well, that's a very good question. Now, we were concerned about how were the uh, uh, Inca in Peru, where they did not have a written language. They didn't have they didn't have the wheel. They didn't have iron or steel. How could they possibly have constructed these long canals at just the right grade to carry the amount of water they needed? And the best thing we could come up with was that they used uh, water bowls. And uh, there are there are examples of uh, a few examples left of these surveying instruments in the museums that were used by the Inca for carrying their grade forward. Now, as far as the Romans were concerned, they are uh, more advanced in terms of engineering, but they were able to carry um, grades for uh, tens and tens of miles from the source of water to the place of use at uh, slopes that were so flat that it seemed impossible that they could possibly have done it 2,000 years ago. And with them, I think they also relied upon uh, uh, water levels Hmm. Interesting. Now, one of the other um, one of the other areas we talked about was your work on uh, the Anasazi in southwest in the southwest United States. So, what what kind of time period did those peoples live, um, and what what did you your studies uh, teach you about the way those people used water? Well, what we came away with was that the ancient Indians of southwest United States were very well organized, and they were uh, dedicated to uh, their community. And what we found out was that the reservoirs that we studied in Mesa Verde uh, dated from starting in uh, our earliest reservoir started in uh, 750 A.D. The last one we studied was abandoned in um, about 1180. So hundreds and hundreds of years. The first reservoir we studied at Mesa Verde was called Moorfield Reservoir. And we started, the Park Service wasn't sure just what it was because uh, archaeologists had been studying this mound out in the middle of a valley, Moorfield Valley, and they thought that it might have been a, uh, a uh, dance platform, an ancient dance platform, Another scientist out of uh, Arizona concluded that it was a uh, erosional remnant of a Pleistocene terrace. And we had uh, gotten our permit back in 1994 and studied the site for about three or four years. And we hired the largest backhoe in uh, county, local county, out of Cortez. We dug a huge trench and were able to study the trench walls to determine uh, exactly what this mound was. And we concluded without doubt 
that it was an ancient reservoir dating from 750 A.D. to 1100 A.D. And we were able to, uh, by measuring uh, and, and documenting the cross-section of the various layers over the 300-year period, 350-year period, we concluded that uh, it was <coughs> um, that uh, it was uh, subject to flooding, and looking at the sediments, we found out that there were some uh, 14 or so forest fires in the basin because we could, we could measure the uh, the carbon from the burnt trees and the layers, and all of this provided shaping for us of the reservoir bottom so that we could determine how much uh, what the capacity was and that it was used for domestic water supply purposes for the nearby uh, uh, Anasazi Indian population, the um, uh, dating from uh, many, many years ago. We also concluded that uh, the uh, upstream of these reservoirs that they grew corn, ancient maize, which was introduced into the southwest maybe 1,000 B.C., but we knew they were growing corn because uh, in our excavations, we collected soil samples, and the soil samples then were provided to uh, uh, people who study pollen, and uh, we were able to measure the density of uh, corn pollen and uh, also other vegetation that was in the basin. And provided us with lots of good information on the ancient use of water and because in the excavations besides the uh, information I talked about gained from the sediments there were also left uh, pottery shards and we could tell for instance how old the site was by uh, having our archaeologists uh, determine what age, what period the uh, pottery came from. That coupled with the study of, uh, of uh, time, uh, uh, the, 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 the dating of the time by using carbon-14 testing, we were able to bind this all together and make good estimates as to when the reservoirs were started and then when they were finally abandoned. Yeah, and so uh, you, you essentially determined a lot of this through through analysis of the sediment uh, that was in the reservoir bottom. I, that's what it sounded like, at least, because you took the backhoe. Yeah. And, okay. Okay. And um, in terms of, of the site, uh, it, it sound could you could you just kind of describe what it looked like a little bit because uh there there it sounded like there were a number of differing opinions as to what this actually was i mean was this just like a big circular you know well, that's a good question david because when we first saw this site it certainly was a mound first of all let's describe the canyon it's morefield canyon has a, a bottom about 500 feet wide with uh mountainsides going up maybe um, oh maybe 800 feet uh, and then in, so here we are in the bottom of this canyon and the uh, the ancient stream bed is dry and has been dry for had been dry for years and years and years this mound about 20 feet high 
maybe 150 feet in diameter, and it was a strange uh, formation for a potential reservoir, and that's why the Park Service people originally thought that it might have been a dance platform because it was raised above the valley bottom about 20 feet, flat on top, but after we excavated it with the Dr. Jack Smith, a colleague of ours, who had been uh, chief archaeologist from Mesa Verde previously, but we excavated and found out that definitely was a reservoir. And the reason it was a mound was that over a 350-year period, it carried sediment in from the stream. And the Indians would have to uh, dredge the, uh, the reservoir, and they would throw the sediment over the edge. And that, coupled with the sediment left in the bottom, meant that over 350 years, it finally grew into a mound 20 feet high, above, <laughs> and rather than being buried, but it was only because of the sediment uh, impact. And so the reason it looked like a dance platform is that they had a canal leading to the reservoir that also was raised because the canal to bring water into a raised uh, uh, area due to the sediment. So the canal was raised as well, and it looked like a walkway to this uh, it was a mound, and the mound was flat as a pancake on top, and that was because the sediment would be evenly distributed over the top of the, uh, uh, in the reservoir, and that left a, a flat top. So it certainly looked just like an ancient dance platform. Hmm. Fa- absolutely fascinating. So, uh, you know, Ken, what... What have has studying all of these uh, ancient water systems? What's kind of that um, taught you about our modern systems and and how we should engineer those and things like that? What's been useful for us because in our uh, practice of engineering here uh, in Denver, where we work all over the country, um, we found out that these ancient people uh, practice. Sustainability, first of all, that was important. And the other thing we found was that they were good engineers and they practiced their work with a high standard of care. They left lots of evidence for us because the uh, construction, the the evidence they left was stone canals and stone fountains. The evidence was very good for us to be able to analyze. But what we learned was that these people, uh, besides having high standard of care, they knew how to build canals and deliver water where they needed it in the right amount. The fact that they used simple gravity flow designs told us a lot about not over-complicating designs, but to try and keep things uh, uh, maintainable. Right. It sounds like Steve Jobs uh, uh, may have had a foil back then. But um, do you have any thoughts on where pi- paleohydrology is heading? What is ha- has your work kind of stoked interest in this area? And so we're you know there are more people out there looking at at paleohydrology and and trying to discover things about these ancient water systems. Well, the work that I've done and the publications I've uh, had. Distributed should have uh, uh, 
caused a much greater interest in paleohydrology than what ex exists today. But I think that in answer to your question, I'd say that we're fortunate that the uh, University of Virginia at uh, uh, Charlottesville is interested. The people there, the civil engineering department, are very interested in paleohydrology and are doing good work uh, under the leadership of uh, Professor Mixed, former dean of engineering. But typically, I would say people are too busy fighting the, today's battles and aren't giving enough consideration to looking at the uh, aspects of paleohydrology. Now, one of the reasons it's going to uh, grow more slow than I would like is that it relates well to archaeology and anthropology because what we're able to do with uh, studying the ancient water supplies and how they handle the water and how they use the water, the it's useful in archaeology in terms of their interpreting these ancient cultures. Right. I would say paleohydrology is heading positively upwards, but at a rate slower than I'd like to see. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, Ken, I, I, I came to uh, learn about paleohydrology a little too late to switch careers, but uh, I certainly find it interesting. Um, and I, I think it's, it's fascinating just in, in how it can, can shed clues on uh, what's happened in the past uh, and how those peoples lived and, and things of that nature. So I, I find it absolutely fascinating. And, and I, th I think a lot of the listeners will too. And, and for those folks who, who do want to find out more about you and uh, your work and uh, paleohydrology, where would you send those folks? Well, I would um, send them to the, uh, the American Society of Civil Engineers, who's uh, done a good job. The, the society has done a good job of publishing four books so far that I've done on paleohydrology. And it's ASE Press. And then uh, for more information on myself and our team here at Whitewater Engineers, we have a web page, which is www.rightwater.com. And there we tell about uh, the work that we do, and we touch upon the interesting uh, uh, archaeological site that we studied and are continuing to study because our people here at Wright Water Engineers are very interested in the subject, and uh, we have to hold them back to keep them from taking trips off to uh, Thailand and Burma and other places for studies for the um, World Monument Fund. Got it, got it. And you were... Yeah, I was going to say thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to tell your people about paleohydrology and how fascinating it is for engineers and others to research ancient archaeological sites and learn about what these people were doing in the past. Yeah, I, I, I just want to thank you so much, Ken. I, th I think this has been really valuable and uh, I I think you're absolutely right. Paleohydrology helps shed so much light on what was really going on back then. Uh, because I think a lot of us, uh, uh, when we went through school, we didn't get, you know, it wasn't the teacher's fault, but we didn't, we didn't get the full story of what, what, uh, uh, these, these native peoples and ancient peoples, uh, were doing, 
Uh, so again, Ken, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. And you were very, uh, I think, humble. I think a lot of the, the work you've done on in this paleohydrology hydrology sphere has, has essentially been free or pro bono by you and the team at Right Water Engineers, right? Yes, it's, on the other hand, it's well worth it because we learn so much and we enjoy it so much and have opportunities to travel to uh, exotic places. Terrific. Well, again, Ken, thank you again. I uh, really appreciate your time. Okay. Well, thank you. Goodbye. Bye, Ken. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ken Wright. Uh, and you know, for anyone who enjoys history, for anyone uh, that has studied anthropology and archaeology and all this, and I just found it uh, and, uh, just a, a really interesting convergence of those disciplines. And, you know, Ken... Ken just has so much knowledge and information to share. And I just, I am just so happy that he came on uh, and, and was able to talk about some of the aspects of paleohydrology that he has discovered over the years. So thank you very much, Ken. Really, I, I really sincerely appreciate your time for coming on. Um, and so, you know, with that said, let me know what you thought of the interview. You can go uh, find us on uh, thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 108. Uh, leave a comment on the show notes. Email me at david at You can also tweet at me at my Twitter handle, which is at DTM1993. And you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. And uh, please do me a favor. Uh, like I said at the top of the show, if you uh, have enjoyed the podcast and haven't yet rated or reviewed it, please Hop on to iTunes or Stitcher or tune in, whatever uh, podcast directory you're using, and uh, leave a, a rating and a review. would really appreciate it, and you'll get a little airtime out of it. Uh, the other thing uh, I'd like to, to say that if you have enjoyed the podcast uh, and um, you know have, have the means to do so, please consider uh, leaving us a donation at the uh, watervalues.com. There's a little you know yellow PayPal button that you can hit on the right side of the website. It's on most of the pages. Uh, just click that the, it helps keep the uh, the water flowing, so to speak, and the lights on here at the Water Values Podcast. Uh, again, really appreciate uh, the ratings and reviews and all the donations that you've uh, you've made. It really helps defray the expenses of uh, putting the podcast on. So, with that in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource. So please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. 
And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.